you so much, and what beautiful music. And it's really a privilege to be with you. Uh, Pam and I have looked forward to this for a long time, and we're part California now because my son is going to UCLA. How do you like that? And uh, so we'll be around this way. Thank you. We'll be around this way, I hope, again. So a great privilege to, to see you guys, and uh, we've been praying as well along with you that God would do great things. You know, it's just amazing that God can do what he needs to do in a very short order if he wants to, right? God can change. In this meeting tonight, God could radically transform our lives. And who among us um, doesn't need some of that, right? Who, who could possibly say, I'm exactly where I need to be? So we need to listen closely to what the Lord might say to us tonight. Now, I wanted you to turn to 1 Samuel 3, and I need you to do that right now. So please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 3. It's great to have a little of the background that was read tonight for us. We're going to focus, though, just on this chapter and the first 10 verses of this great chapter, 1 Samuel 3. My, it's an amazing chapter, and I'm really anxious to talk to you about this. Now, let's just pray again, all right, and ask for God's help. Father, again, we are... Uh, in a fresh way, looking to you, asking you to make yourself known to us. Just open our eyes, help us to see, transform us by the things, the truths, eternal truths that are said here tonight. Uh, Help us to pay attention, to listen carefully to the things that you are saying to us. And Lord, we just, we expect you to do good things for yourself. Please, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We read about young Samuel. Samuel was uh, dedicated to the Lord uh, in this unusual way that we read about in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. It's a great story, isn't it? And it's a pivotal story in the history of redemption, actually. Very important person, Samuel. And he stands out in the Old Testament as a critical figure. But I want us to look at, mainly, at his conversion tonight. And I want us to think carefully about this. And now, it has implications for us as uh, people, any individual in this room, but also very strong implications for children. So we have to think about this very carefully, because our roles are actually, in churches around the country, are actually packed with people who think they're Christians, Uh, believing that they came to Christ as a child because of the poor way that we handle and understand childhood conversion. So I really want us to focus here on an important thing. It's important to you, isn't it, to think about these kids? I believe that. Um, When Samuel was brought to the house of Eli... It was a very difficult and dangerous thing for Hannah and Elkanah to do. One, he was very young. He was about three years of age. He was of a Levite background. I mean, this was his tribal group, interestingly. But to come so young, uh, to leave his parents, to leave Hannah, his, must have been a very godly woman, right? And a great father. This was a good home. But it was dangerous for them because no doubt by then she had already heard about the, the wickedness, the immorality, 
and the profaneness of Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Besides having terrible names, they were terrible people. They, they were immoral with women who were serving in the, in the tabernacle in Shiloh, north of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle first was in the early days after they came into the land. They profaned the ministry that they had been given. They were priests of God. And the way they handled the sacrifices was a, a profanation of their duties as a priest. And that was very important to God. These were wicked people. It was, uh, I mean, there was nothing really in their bringing, Eli, uh, bringing Samuel to the house of Eli that could give them any kind of hope or assurance that young Samuel was going to be a godly Israelite in the land. There's nothing about that. that was, it was a very risky thing in a sense. If it hadn't been for the sense of God's calling, you know, uh, in, in Hannah's life and the unusual circumstances that were involved. Uh, how did she know, would she know, that he would be any different than these awful sons, Hophni and Phinehas? It was like a bad foster home, if you know what I mean. It was a toxic atmosphere. It was not a great place to be. And then we have Eli. Eli uh, was an indulgent, uh, old, he was a very old guy, probably in his 80s at the time. He will die in his 90s uh, eventually. Very old guy. And he was very fat. He was so fat that eventually he fell over backwards and died from his own weight. He participated in the sins of Hophni and Phinehas and their wrong use of the offerings because he got fat over those offerings with the early keto diet, which he did back then, if you know what I mean. Uh, and so, you know, and then he was nearly blind. So that's no good for uh, being a surrogate father, is it? So what kind of father was Eli going to be? He hadn't done a good job at all with Hophni and Phinehas. Now concerning Hophni and Phinehas, it's very interesting to read about their uh, immorality and so forth in chapter 2. We didn't do that tonight, but maybe you remember it. But one of the things I think that really is indicting, stands out maybe above all the other things that are said, is this simple phrase, these were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. Just that simple statement. They did not know the Lord. Interestingly, Samuel, the, in the chapter 3 that we're going to read, the very same words are used for Samuel. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. So how is Samuel going to be any different than Hophni and Phinehas in this awful home situation, in this religious hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is well known to produce rebellion in so-called Christian homes. And it surely is the same in an old covenant home. And these were hypocritical people, if you've ever known any. The, the, these were hypocrites. So it was, a, it was a risky move for them to bring young Samuel there. He possibly was about three years of age. Now, we're going to 1 Samuel um, because, interestingly, this is the only clear childhood conversion in the whole Bible. Now, that should wake you up just a little bit, okay? 
It's the only clear childhood conversion in the Old Bible. And we have to go a thousand years before Jesus to find that conversion. You don't have any clear situation in the, in the New Testament. Sometimes people point to Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer's household, Lydia's the seller of purple, you know, her household in chapter 16 of Acts. But there's no, there's no record that any children were even there. A household could be made up of servants or grandparents or teenage kids or whatever. There's no indication for sure that any children were even in those homes. We don't have any clear childhood conversion except this one, as far as I can understand, in the Bible that we could really point to. Amazing, isn't it? Now, Samuel, here's another fact that might uh, alarm you a little bit. Uh, makes me, certainly causes me to pause and think a little bit. Samuel was converted probably between, somewhere between 11 and 15 years of age. Now, the little picture in the Sunday school room of, you know, Samuel as a preschool, what we call a preschool child, uh, and having an encounter with God would not really be the case if you look at chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. In chapter 2, we find out a little bit of data that helps us realize that Samuel was a bit older when he was actually converted to Christ. Uh, he was, first of all, uh, he didn't go until he was weaned. In that culture, that may have been as late as three years of age. No doubt Hannah wanted to hang on to him as long as she could. And then he was brought and, 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 uh, to Shiloh, and then they made repeated visits to, uh, to Samuel, the Bible tells us. Then God bestowed on her another grace at a certain juncture in her motherhood, and allowed her to have more children, and she's going to have three boys and two girls. And all of that happens before we come to the story of the conversion of Samuel. So many people would think that this child was really, again, a preteen teenager the way we speak about it before he was actually converted. Man, another thing to give you pause to think about childhood conversion, especially in the light of the fact that the threshing machines of evangelism today in so many of our churches are cutting closer and closer to the ground. Younger and younger and younger children are claiming to be Christians and to have been converted to Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Now, I believe God can do whatever he wants to do, to tell you the truth. I believe he can do that. However, it just should make us think. It should make us think. My mother was converted when she was 15 years of age. She was the youngest, actually, of 14 children, 11 who lived into adulthood. And all of those children, thankfully, were converted to Christ. All my aunts and uncles on that side, on both sides, thankfully, were converted to Jesus Christ. She was, I believe, the youngest one at 15 years of age. The others of them were either a little older than her, all the way up into their early adulthood. And this was a godly home of Judge Carter, a, you know, just a really fine home of believers, people who really cared about uh, their life with God. And yet those kids were not converted until they were somewhat older. Again, not saying that, what can we say about that? That's an experience they had. But that was fairly characteristic in the early 1900s for, for the children to be much older. Again, we're just getting younger and younger, as we kind of think about harvesting in churches, and we keep getting lower and lower and lower in so many churches uh, with those who are claiming to be Christians. 
So let's look at this text of Scripture together, all right? Let's, let's read it together. And as we read this story, I want us to ask something as we read through these 10 verses. Let's ask, what is the hope that my children or my grandchildren or the kids that I work with and care about in this church, what is the hope that they will be saved? And then I'm going to count on you to make additional applications just to your own life as adults if you're an adult here, okay? So let's read this, verse 1, verse one of chapter 3 on down through verse 10. I'll read. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. That means it's probably early in the morning when the lamps had to be refreshed. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, that the Lord called Samuel. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and he said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and he lay down. Now the Lord, Yahweh, called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and he went to Eli and he said, here I am for you called me. But he answered, I didn't call you my son. Lie down again. Now notice these words in verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. It's about the only good thing that Eli ever did. And Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Verse 10, now the Lord came and stood. Did you ever notice that before? The Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And this is the beginning of Samuel's relationship with the Lord. And I won't read the rest of it, but Samuel was very much like the Apostle Paul, who was converted on the road to Damascus. He was both converted and received his call into ministry at the same time. This happens occasionally in the scriptures. We're going to look at the conversion side of this situation, all right? Now I want to make a few observations because everything changed at this moment for Samuel. Would you agree? Everything was different. So let's look at these three things that I've been able to observe out of this text. Here's the first thing I want us to see. It's very simple. Christ called Samuel. Now I know the word is in capitals. If you, if you know how your Bible works, probably they capitalize the word Yahweh. And you'll see that in this text. That, For instance, verse 10, then the Lord 
capitals. That means Yahweh came and stood and called, as at other times. So sometimes we say, well, when, when the Lord appears like this, it is a theophany. Have you ever heard of that word? A theophany. It is a, an epiphany or an appearance of theos, or God. It is an appearance of God. And I, that would be right. But more precisely, this would be a Christophany, Christophany, or an epiphany, or appearance of Christ as pre-incarnate. There's an interpretive clue here, and the interpretive clue is found in verse 10. He came, it says, the Lord came, and he stood, and he called as at other times. I read this for years and never noticed the idea that, that, that this was happening. He came, and he stood as at other times. So what's going on here? Well, you see, one thing that is very important to realize when we think about these appearances is that the Lord spoke of this sort of thing himself in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and he made the statement more than one time that no one has seen the Father at any time. Just a categorical statement. No one has seen the Father at any time. The Son has revealed him. So the appearances that took place in the Old Testament were appearances of the pre-incarnate. That means pre in the flesh, right? Carne is flesh, pre-incarnate Christ. They were Christ, the one through whom the worlds were created. That's what the New Testament tells us three times. He was the one through whom the worlds were created, even though it says God created the worlds. It was through Jesus Christ, the one that was th- the world that was created through Him. This is the one who breathed into the nostrils of Adam. This is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, because there's this form God's never seen. I mean, the Father is never seen in any form like that. And then this is the one who, um, for instance. Uh, talked with Abraham. The Bible says he appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He took Abraham outside himself. Behold, it says, he walked, took him outside and he stood beside him and pointed to the stars. It's incredible when you think about it. He pointed to the stars and told him about his destiny. He's the one that appeared one time at his tent. You remember three people came up and Abraham knew who they were, didn't he? He knew that two of them were angels and one of them was the Lord. And he talked to the Lord and he begged him concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that story? This is the the one who appeared to to, uh, Jacob, for instance, when as the the angel or the the messenger of the Lord, one of the terms used for the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, the messenger of the Lord and wrestled with him and gave him a new name, right? This is the one who appeared to Samson's parents. And over and over again, we find this in the Scripture, appearing to the prophets, appearing to Joshua before the battle of Jericho as the great commander. Over and over again, we find these appearances of Jesus Christ. He was in the world, John 1 tells us. He was in the world. He was taking care of his world that he had created. This is... I just want to tell you, this is Jesus' world from the beginning to the end. If you want to enliven your scripture reading, by the way, just wake up to the fact that Jesus is appearing 
or the, we, we should use the term maybe the Son of God or the Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ is appearing in the Old Testament. Jesus is the human name that he gets when he is incarnate, okay? All right, so Jesus, or excuse me, Christ was the one then who called Samuel. He actually met up with Christ here, the Christ who would die for him, the Christ who would would be resurrected for him, the Christ who would come again one day for him and the rest of us. This is the one that he met there uh, that really called him. Notice in verse 20, look, look at your Bibles again, chapter 3, and verse 20 and 21. All Israel from Dan, that's way at the top, to Beersheba, that's way at the bottom of Israel. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet. They, used, they called them, started out calling them seers. They see visions. Seer of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Uh, he saw something. It is an appearance by the word of the Lord. And there are people who would argue that that term, the word of the Lord, is the term that is used in various places in the Old Testament actually for the pre-incarnate Christ, the one later, you know, that would become flesh. The word became flesh. Okay? I'll let you figure that out if that's the case. But it's a very interesting idea. Now, second observation Samuel now knew Christ. <laughs> Look again in verse 7 here, 1 Samuel 3. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, it says. But then after this experience, when Christ calls Samuel, we have to say Samuel now lived his life the rest of his days in a very clear fashion, as one who knew the Lord. Everything really changed for Samuel at this point. He became eternally different from Hophni and Phinehas. Eternally different than these other men who didn't know the Lord, just like he didn't know the Lord before. He was very, very different forever. And that's what your child must experience. Your child must know the Lord. Jesus himself, think about this carefully, Jesus himself defined eternal life in this way. In John 17, his high priestly prayer, in the first few verses, he says this. This, he's talking to the Father, this is eternal life, he tells his Father. Now, here we're going to have a definition of eternal life, right? It's not... It's not the Webster's Dictionary. It's not the Oxford English Dictionary. It's not even Wikipedia. (laughs) We're going to have a definition from the author of eternal life. Do you think that Jesus knows what eternal life is? Okay. This is eternal life, he told the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and the Son whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That's Jesus' way of defining what eternal life really is. So it seems to me that for a person to say, I have eternal life, but yet to say, I do not know the Lord, those are two incongruous things. Those two things can't be together. You, if you have eternal life, it must be that you know Christ and the Father. 
All right? So think carefully. This is what we're looking for when we talk to our children. This is what we're expecting God to do. We want there to be a difference like there was for Samuel. One time they didn't know the Lord, and then there is a change, and now they know the Lord, and they will live that way for the rest of their days. Okay? And I hope that's true for you as well. It has to be true if you have eternal life. That's what the Scripture teaches in many places, really. Um, yeah, so in, um, in John 10, here's another phrase that Jesus gave us. He said, my sheep know me, and I know them. In a whole chapter, really, uh, almost the entire chapter is dedicated to this idea that there is this reciprocal, intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. That's what happened to Samuel. That's what must happen to your child and to you. All right, a third observation. Are you thinking about yourself and your children, those you love, grandkids, whatever? All right, think about this. The third observation, Samuel knew Christ only because of the revelation of Christ. Samuel knew Christ only because of the revelation of Christ. If you were to come up to me after this meeting and you were just stood here looking at me, trying to talk to me about your life, trying to tell me something about yourself, and I was just looking over your shoulder. I wasn't making any kind of facial response to the things you were saying. I was looking just at other things, not paying a bit of attention. Would we really know each other? We wouldn't know each other because knowing, knowing at a minimum at least means we have to reveal something about ourselves to the other person. That's the way we know them, right? Now, it is possible, as you have, I'm sure, thought before, it is very possible for you to know a lot about Jesus Christ and not know Him. You can know a great deal about Jesus Christ and not really have a true relationship to Him. It is necessary uh, to experience some kind of revelation of Christ. And I'm, I'm careful with the use of my words there. In John 10, for instance, Jesus said this, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. There's that initiation, that revelation of the Father, of the, of the Son. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Revelation is necessary for knowing Christ. Well, listen, here's an interesting thing. Whenever I... Whenever I preach the gospel in different places in the world, I know Kurt and others of you who've been different places uh, have experienced this. I think very often about this phrase, this sentence from the Apostle Paul. Paul. Paul begins 1 Corinthians with this idea in chapter 1. He says, you know, when I preach the gospel, it is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. But to the what? To the called, it's the power of God unto salvation. Catching on? There has to be the revelation of Christ before you could ever know him. So what we have to say is this. The thing that you cannot control, they need the most. 
This is pretty frustrating to parents. Pretty frustrating. I mean, we educate them. I hope you teach them Bible verses. I hope you teach them songs about God and Jesus. I hope you do. I hope you fill their life with those things. But let me tell you, you don't educate them across the line. In fact, the very gospel that you educate them in might cause them to rebel. That's the history in the world, isn't it? The gospel causes a great reaction. At some point, your child may actually rebel against the gospel that you've shared so much of. This truth that Christ must reveal himself to the child, whatever place you go in Scripture to talk about it, there are ways to talk about it, different ways to talk about it, but that general idea that there must be a revelation of Christ really gave Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher in, uh, you know, in Connecticut, gave him a great deal of hope. He, he experienced the great awakening. The great awakening, let me just say this, an awakening is a mass, in mass, revelation of Christ. <laughs> what happens to the individual all along the way, to individuals, happens in mass at a time of awakening. I've been a student of awakening for many years, and I can just tell you it's just the same thing that happens. Nothing's really different, except that God chooses to do this with many people at the same time. He experienced that. He went through in Northampton, Massachusetts, he went through, uh, he went through this experience of awakening, the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Then, later on in his ministry in that church, he was actually told, he was actually removed from the church. So if you ever have that experience happen to you, that'll be a good person to study. He's very gracious about it, amazingly, right? Amazingly gracious about this. But he believed in the providence of God. He went, ended up in Stockbridge, way up north, and most of the people that he was working with were illiterate Indians. He was just way on the frontier up north, and now this very refined, educated man who could nuance things like crazy and was, had the longest sentences in the world and is somewhat difficult if you've ever tried to read a Jonathan Edwards sermon, this person then went up there and worked among people who didn't even know how to read, and uh, he had to think very hard about how, how is it going to be that these people are going to be converted through a ministry like mine? They don't understand the history. They don't know the theology. They don't, they don't read the Bible. They, you know, how is it going to happen? And as he thought it through, here was his conclusion. Their conversion, their relationship with Jesus Christ happens by one step. And that is the revelation of the glory of Christ. <laughs> well, that's a great deal of, that brought a great deal of hope to Jonathan Edwards that God could bring these Indians whom he loved to a relationship with Christ, and indeed it did happen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells us in 3 and 4, I want you to think with me about it. In fact, would you mind, let's just turn to this one, okay? Let's turn to first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. So here's what I'm going to say. Here's my premise here, the point I want to make. 
that the Apostle Paul bases his entire New Covenant ministry experience-wise on this idea that Christ must reveal himself for a person to be saved. He does. Now look at chapter 3, where he says, as he talks about the Old Covenant and the Jews, um, in verse 15... Speaking of the Jews, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. They don't see. But still to this day is a problem, isn't it? Though some see, a remnant see, most do not see. He goes on down in verse 18 and says, speaking of Christians, but we all with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, that is, gazing like you do when you look in a mirror in the morning, you gaze, you look intently, intently. that's what he's talking about here, gazing at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Lord, the Spirit. So we, we have to say just that this is true for us as believers as we see more and more of the glory of Christ as he is revealed, we are being transformed and the Spirit of God is working to transform us into the same image. This idea of the glory of Christ, which is the beauty and the excellence and the compelling nature and loveliness and sacrificial death and resurrection, the activity, the the works that he did and the words that he says, these compelling things, as this glory of Christ is unveiled, it unveiled to us, it transforms us. It has a huge power to transform us. But that has a beginning in every person's life who is a Christian. That's what we want to happen to your children. We want that beginning. We want that, that to happen, the glory of Christ to be revealed to that child. Right? So let's look at that beginning In the next chapter, just a couple of verses here. Look at it. Look in verse um, 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has what? Has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that what? So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Is that making sense? Then he says on down in verse 6, speaking of his experience and the apostles' experience, look at this. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, this is speaking of creation, of that fiat creation, right? God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay? We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So this is what the Apostle Paul predicates all of his ministry upon in terms of experience. This must happen to the person if they will be a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ. 
It's a wonderful story. Maybe you've heard this story. Um, you can see it on YouTube, if you wish. Years ago, uh, a man from New Tribes Mission, a missionary, went to the Malk Indians in Papua New Guinea. And they had, they had generation after generation, as far as they knew, from all time, they had never heard about Jesus Christ. This is now called Ethnos 360. They've changed their name. And so this was a, a, a huge challenge. What would he do? Well, the New Tribes people then... Ethnos 360, devised something they call the chronological way of teaching through the Bible. And they would start with Genesis, and they would would just build upon what the storyline said all the way through. And they took three months. They they gathered all the tribe. There were, I think, 310 people. They said in kind of rough bleachers that they made. And this missionary with some kind of tools like pictures and a little bit of drama helping, getting them to do a a few things to help them see things, for three months, five days a week, taught them all day long, just following the chronology of the Bible. It's an incredible thing. It's one of the missiological tools that's come in the last few decades that's really had a big impact. They got to the time of Christ, and they were so attracted to Christ, like so many people were in the Bible, so attracted to His miracles and words that He said, and that He cared for the poor, and that He, you know, just all these things were appealing to the people. And, They followed and tracked along with him through the gospel accounts. And then comes the time when Jesus Christ was betrayed. You could see on their faces, if you look at it, you could see they're just crestfallen. They just just can't believe. A, a, A disciple, somebody close to Jesus Christ, would betray him? The next morning, they told of the death of Jesus Christ. And it was more sorrow, just pain in their faces. They just couldn't believe that this one that had been promised by the prophets and all of that, this one was now, uh, was now killed on a cross. The missionary wisely waited three days before they reconvened. They met early in the morning. <laughs> what a beautiful thing. And early in the morning... He told them of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their faces, I hope you'll watch this YouTube, but their faces just lit up. It's called E-Tau, E-E-T-A-O-W, E-Tau, which means it is truth. And spontaneously, these normally restrained and reserved tribal people began to testify. One man stood up and he said, Jesus Christ has died for my sins, to cover my sins. And he's raised again. And another old grandmother comes up, and she's jumping up and down. She's so excited. She talks about what has happened in her heart. And this one and that one begin to testify. Finally, somebody yells out, Etow! It is true. It is truth. And another one yells out, Etow, and another one, Etow, and another one, Etow, until they're finally all jumping together, the whole tribe. They did this for two and a half hours, lifting people up, you know, just carrying people along, just rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's not wrong to have emotion, is it, (laughs) when you see the truth? And they saw the truth. It is true. And they believed in a moment. They had seen, actually, I, say, I would say this. They had seen a greater display of the glory than Samuel saw. 
because they saw the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ portrayed to them. Right? And they were just born, a tribal group was born in a day. Incredible, isn't it? This is what we're asking for. This is why when you read in the New Testament, it's not this great emphasis on having an altar call at the end of the messages that the apostles are, are, are preaching. It just says they believed. So many times, it's just they believed. If there's any question about what must we do, like in the Pentecost sermon, believe. It's almost, I have to say, it's almost natural to believe. Believe is like a response of seeing. It's like seeing is believing. You understand what I'm saying? Having this revelation of Christ in the words that are said, in the way that God, by His Holy Spirit, presents Christ, to let them see the face of Christ, to understand the glory of God, uh, then they just believe. Do you understand how that could be true? And they repent. Well, what else would you do? What else would you do in light of who He is? You, do you understand what I'm saying? It is a, it is some, yes, those things are needed. Yes, repentance. Yes, believing is mentioned so many times in the Scripture. Absolutely, they must believe. But how do they come to the place to have this kind of combination of allegiance to Christ and confidence in His words and His, in the future that He promises? How could they have that? Uh, so, in such a grand way, without the revelation of the glory of Christ. Now, let me share just two or three practical things, and maybe, I don't know if we'll have time to have a few questions. You lead me on that, brother. But let me give you a few just practical things I think that might be helpful to us as we think about children. First of all, I would say um, something that's already been mentioned. You've talked about it here, I'm sure. But stop depending on accoutrements often man-made accoutrements to the gospel, such as a formulaic, a formulaic prayer that's not even found in the Bible, we call the sinner's prayer, or changing geography in a building. Uh, don't depend on such things. If you tell your child, you know, if you pray this prayer and you pray it sincerely, God doesn't lie. Right? And you know, indeed, God doesn't lie. But they go off to a children's meeting, they come back and they say, Daddy, Mom, I, I prayed the prayer. What are you going to say when you <laughs> question what's really happening here? You see, if you're basing this on, some, you're basing their eternal life on saying some words, saying a certain set of words sincerely, is that really what you want to? Risk their eternity on? I mean, is that really what you want to think? Or they've raised a hand? Or some people say in the churches that offer public altar calls, uh, I waited and let him do it or her do it, and if they do it, then they must be sincere. Let me tell you, I, I come out of a denomination that has literally, I, I think we could say at least 10 million people on the rolls of the churches, all of whom have prayed that prayer and walked an aisle. And they don't even show up. They don't even, they don't even bother. They don't love God enough to even show up. So there's no, don't, don't place any hope in those things. 
Those are, you need to, something much more substantive here than that. Secondly, I would say, fill your home with the gospel. Fill it with the gospel. Now let me say again, the gospel has a history of creating reaction, negative reaction. Wouldn't you agree that the New Testament is a story of large amounts of negative reaction to the very gospel, the beautiful gospel that we believe in, but it's negatively responded to? It's amazing, isn't it? How many times that's the case. People even want think about Jesus. He lived this gospel, right? And they put him on a cross. But it is the risk that we take. Because it is also by means of the gospel that God has chosen to reveal the glory of Christ. That's the way it is. God has chosen to carry the seed in the gospel message. That means, as we'll see, I think, even clearer in the next session, that means is a powerful means by which the glory of Christ is actually displayed to your children. And God chooses it. He's doing something that you can't control. But if God chooses to reveal himself in all his beauty and power in that, uh, you want to be sure that you're filling your home with the gospel, right? Filling and not being a hindrance to God's, to the Spirit's possibilities, his work in that person's life. And then finally, I think you just, we just need to pray. We need to pray because we're talking about something that God can do that we cannot do. So we need to pray. I realize that God is sovereign here, but I hate to break the news to you, but He's sovereign about everything you're praying about. (laughs) God does some things only in answer to prayer, but He always does everything He wills to do. That's a mystery, but you should pray. And if you have concern in your heart for your child, you will pray, you will plead, I can tell you so many times, I'd, I'd be off traveling, you know, and my kids, my oldest son wasn't converted until he was 18. Everybody thought he was a Christian, of course. He didn't think he was a Christian ever. He didn't think until he was 18. Wasn't Spurgeon's children, weren't they 18 as twins, I believe? Uh, another son, 16, another, my daughter, 15. And, you know, I was burdened. Man, that's a long time to keep dad in suspense. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> And I was concerned, so deeply concerned. I wake up in the middle of the night. Sometimes I just, I had to just write. I just had to write things down, or just cry out to God. Just uh, many times I have just wept tears over over my children for their conversion. I hope you do the same thing. I think we cry out. You know, we need to pray like Hannah. You know, pray like Hannah. Um, and then. Let me just share this story. You know, you guys are Spurgeon lovers, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to tell again the story of Spurgeon's conversion. Here's why I'm going to tell it, because it really expresses just exactly what we've been talking about and what you need to hear and what you need to think about in terms of your family, okay? You remember that Charles Spurgeon was, he said, he said when I was a young man in my basically the same time frame, that 11 to 15 years of age. He said, I was in the, dun- under the, dungeon of the in the dungeon of the law. He said, there was never a more miserable person than me. That's quite, quite a statement to make. Never a more miserable person than me. 
than me all these years in the dungeon of the law. He tried to, he said, I tried to believe. And I couldn't believe. He said, I know it's a strange thing to say, but I couldn't believe. I heard my aunt say that, by the way. She told me, I never heard anybody else say it, but I asked my aunt how she was converted. She said, I tried many years to believe. I couldn't believe. And then she became a great Christian with the help of the Lord, doing what he could do. So he was in this, he was just miserable. He had read Puritans. He knew he had a grandfather who was a godly pastor. Uh, They had no doubt answered questions, talked over and over again about these things. He was as much as any child you'll ever know as informed about what people had to say about what it means to be a Christian. But he, was, he wasn't a Christian. And it was a snowy night. You remember that? That snowy day, rather. That snowy day on the Lord's Day. And he headed off to church. He couldn't get to the church that he wanted to go to, but he had to turn in because of the snow in Colchester to the Primitive Methodist Chapel, a little church. And the pastor of the church, the pastor of the church was snowed in. And so a deacon of the church, about 15 people present, the deacon, a deacon in the church, got up to deliver a message. And Spurgeon said, he took for his text, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said, he didn't even pronounce the words rightly. But that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. You've got to realize he was in anguish about his soul. The preacher began like this, he said. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the man said, The text says, look unto me. I said, in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look to me. Some of ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. No, you have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then Spurgeon said the good man followed up his text in this way. He said, look unto me. I'm sweating great, great drops of blood for you. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Well, Spurgeon said he managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so and said everything he could say. He's at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the galley. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, he said. 
but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. (laughs) However, it was a good blow, he said. It struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Spurgeon said. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon was born again. He repented. He believed. (laughs) When the blinders were taken away, the blindness was removed, and he saw the glory of Christ. That's what, that's the one thing. That's the essential thing that has to happen to you and your children. Let's bow our heads now and pray. Let's close our eyes, please. Father, this is um, such an important moment to think about this thing. We have children that don't know the Lord, just like Samuel, don't know the Lord. The word of the Lord was not yet revealed to them. We're asking for what only you can do, what you have chosen to do in thousands of cases. What you have done for many in this room to make yourself known In such a way that seeing is believing. Seeing is dropping everything. Seeing is like the man who finds a treasure in a field and immediately with joy goes and sells everything he has in order to buy that field. So just bear down, Lord, please, by your spirit with this truth in our lives. And help us to learn and be instructed by it and to know how to pray, know how to seek, and know how to look to you and know how to lead our families. And Lord, we, we ask that you might open our eyes, the eyes of everyone here. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen.